0: Please. Okay, everyone, good evening. Uh, tonight we're going to uh, re- continue our um, series on the Chachamim, uh, the different religious leaders uh, within uh, London's Spanish and Portuguese community, Shara Shamaim. Uh, last, uh Last month, we looked at the first Chacham of the community, uh, Chacham uh, Yaakov Sasportas, uh who uh, only lasted a year. Uh, before plague uh, descended on London, and he got out of town. Um, Tonight we're going to be, that was 17th century. Uh, Tonight we're going to be looking uh, a bit more into the future. We're going to be looking at the beginning of the 18th century. Um, And uh, we'll look at uh, uh, the Chacham of that time, whose name was David Nieto, who really is an 18th century rabbi, um, as we shall see. We'll see what that means, but he is a, a, a remarkable figure. Um, in his own right, he he really is a very interesting uh, person, Um, but also significant for the community, he's the first rabbi to serve at Bevis Mark Synagogue. Um, The community was founded in the 1650s, um, setting up a makeshift synagogue around the corner on Cree Church Lane, essentially renting space, uh, or first in somebody's home, and that was expanded into a synagogue so more of a makeshift uh, synagogue. They finally build a proper synagogue or start that building in the late uh, 1690s and complete it uh, in 1701. So the first rabbi to actually serve in the synagogue was David Nieto. Uh, so he is a very important figure kind of for the history of this building, right, that we get to uh, still enjoy uh, on a daily basis, um, and in that sense, You might even want to say that while there were other rabbis in the community before him, he really sets the tone for what the community would be in this space. Uh, So he's a a really important figure for that in that regard. Um, And perhaps as part of that, and this we'll kind of see through uh, the lecture tonight, he becomes a model for the community. Um, He really models for the community uh, this kind of ideal, uh, this ideal figure which uh, I would say, maybe ever since, we've been attempting to kind of be like David Nieto uh, in a way uh, different from really every other Chacham that there's been in the community. David Nieto has really been that paradigm um, that we have, that we have uh, sought to, uh, to emulate as a, uh, as a Spanish and Portuguese community. Uh, so let's just kind of go through things because um, Davinieto uh, was not the first rabbi after Yaakov Sasportas. So let's uh, take a look at the different uh, Chachamim. Right, so we had, uh, right, Sasportas, Yaakov Sasportas, right, who was here in uh, 1664. He was uh, succeeded uh, in 1670 by a uh, Yehoshua. De Silva, right? He was here in 1670. Sorry, 1670. Okay, and then the next uh, rabbi to serve here was a another Yaakov, Yaakov uh, Abendana. He was here in 1681. The rabbi after him, his name is Shlomo, so Solomon. Leon. He was here in 1689. He will leave in 1701, right? And that is when David Nieto will uh, be invited to London and will begin serving as a founder of the community. Okay? So these are the, uh, the first five rabbis, Are right, Essentially taking us from the founding of the community, uh, essentially to uh, the beginning of the 18th century, right? And he will serve here until 1728 when he dies and he's laid to rest in the Vecchio uh, Cemetery on Mile right? You can still go and visit his, uh, his, uh, his burial plot uh, in the cemetery. Okay, so that is kind of the quick review. Um, we'll just uh, show you some photos, right? The figure uh, that you're looking at over here, this is Davinietto, who has an, I don't even I've never even seen someone with hair like that, uh, both on his head and on his face, right? Uh, interesting little kind of uh, beard there, right? Um, the, the, the picture itself is, is, is interesting, right, because it, it's depicting a globe, right? So it gives a sense of kind of a, uh, maybe a worldly kind of, a, a man of science, as we'll see, but also a person who's writing, as we'll see he writes uh, as well, um, uh, man of books, um, that we see depicted over here. The, the, the person that he succeeds, Shlomo Alion, is over here. That's, uh, that's a depiction of him. Uh, after leaving here, he, it's because he's going to Amsterdam. He's been appointed to a uh, to position in Amsterdam, which is, of course, the main community of the, of the Western Sephardim. So he, uh, he's going to go over there, though he'll, we'll be getting back to him because... Uh, you know, you're always uh, dealing with the person that you, uh, that you succeed uh, when, you, when you take over a synagogue. So, so he will continue to play a role uh, in, the community, uh, in the community as well. Okay, and we'll see, we'll see what's going on. Okay, so our lecture tonight, will be looking at early 18th century, but we'll also have to look at seven, the later 17th century as well to really understand it. So who is uh, David Nieto? So he is uh, born in Venice in 1654. Okay, he's born in Venice in 1654. Are you related, Silvana? No. Okay, right. So he's. Born, so he, he's uh, I'm trying to think if I see a. Uh, okay, so he's born in Venice in 1654. Um, uh, he is uh, obviously given a kind of classic uh, uh, Jewish or Talmudic education uh, there. Um, he then uh, studies at the kind of very famous uh, University of Padua. He becomes a doctor. So he, uh, he has kind of a very uh, uh, advanced secular degree in addition to his Jewish degree as well. And we'll see that that will play out throughout his life, kind of those, those, that duality. He will then uh, serve in Livorno which is probably the second largest Spanish and Portuguese community right after Amsterdam, right? It'll kind of be the main Spanish Portuguese community is Amsterdam, then you have Livorno, and then after that, you'll have London. Uh, So he will serve there as a Dayan, uh, as a preacher, uh, and also as a doctor. He'll also be a physician uh, in in Livorno um, until he is invited to London in 1701, uh, though his contract explicitly stipulates that he is not allowed to uh, practice medicine anymore, right? It is one of the conditions of his, uh, of his job over here is that he has to be a full-time rabbi, right? They don't want him uh, to also uh, be serving as a doctor. And he accepts it, and he comes to London, and he will serve here, as I said, from 1701 until 1728. Uh, we don't know that much about all of his backstory, it could be he also had a grand you know, seemingly his, his family background is from, is, is Converso background, so he actually has family that uh, had experienced the conversions in Portugal, as right, opposed to some of the Jews in, Ven- in Venice who had just left in 1492, never lived as Catholics, so it seems that he does have some family ancestry that had, um, that had uh, been kind of caught up in Portugal in the conversion, um, but that the family did leave uh, did go to Italy there, returned to Judaism, um, and he was born there and raised there as, as a full Jewish person. Uh, he is interested in different uh, types of things. We mentioned he is interested in, in science. Uh, and the first thing that he writes, and we'll go through some of the uh, his publications, is a book called, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing these, uh, these words correctly, uh, the Pascologia. Uh, does that and what what does that mean okay so here so I'm not sure it might actually mean something else in this context it's a book about astronomy it's a book about astronomy specifically looking at the calculations for Pesach for Passover and Easter because uh, it occurred in the late 60 I think it's in the 6090s um, that uh, Pesach fell out about a month after Easter, which is unusual. Typically, uh, Pesach happens just before Easter. That year was about a month later. So he wrote a whole treatise explaining how the different calendars are calculated, uh, the Justinian, the Gregorian calendar, uh, the solar calendar, and of course, the lunar calendar the Jews follow, and kind of explaining how the whole system worked and how, according to different churches, where right? different churches celebrate Easter at different times, and also explain how the Jews celebrate Pesach. Um, he writes it, uh, I believe, in Italian, uh, and uh, is uh, in 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 contact with uh, Christian. Leaders, he kind of he gives it as a gift to them, though it's actually only published in 1702 when he's already when he's already in London. But we do know that it comes uh, from from even earlier, and he kind of speaks about uh, about that a bit in, in his introduction to it. Um, so that kind of already just kind of tells you he's interested in in a what happens outside the Jewish world, right? He's writing about calendars. He's he's clearly communicating with religious leaders. Of other faiths as well, um, but also is quite kind of knowledgeable about about. Shall we say science of the time? Right, understanding kind of the, uh, uh, the moon and 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 the sun and so on, um, and uh, and writes this important work, kind of fusing together his Judaic knowledge with his with his general knowledge, uh, as well. And again, which something will be, characterize uh, the figure that he is. Um, some of the other works that I'm going to mention now we'll go into more detail as we go through his story but I'll just mention them quickly in 1704 he publishes a book called Della Davina uh, Providencia uh, which is about divine providence right, so he writes a treatise about uh, his, his belief his understanding of how divine providence works uh, in uh, 1714 he writes the book that he's probably most well known for called Uh, Mate Dan. uh that's this book uh, over here, uh, which we'll refer to a little bit uh, later, exactly uh, its story. But this is uh, published in 1714. Uh, I also have here for anyone that's interested in looking later. I tracked this down when I was in New York. It's out of print. Um, the uh, responsum of Rabbi Sasportas that we spoke about last time. So these are his uh, tishivot, his responsum. Uh, we're actually in the process right now of setting up a, a Judaica library here in the synagogue, and one of the things that uh, I wanted to do. Uh, from the beginning is to make sure that in addition to classic Jewish texts that we have the publications of the rabbis of this congregation over the centuries. So we'll have copies of these different books uh, available for the members of the community as well. Um, so that's, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, we'll talk about what exactly the, the content of it is, but it's about uh, Jewish faith. Um, so we'll take a look at that. Uh, he then writes another book called Esh Dat in 1715. Uh, Esh Dat is a uh, anti Sabbatean text. Uh, so we'll talk about what exactly is going on with that. But he writes a polemic against the Sabbateans. Uh, and then he also has a variety of letters and sermons uh, that have been preserved uh, as well. So he, he's written a, a number of different things on, on different uh, topics. Though I would say the, the bulk of it has to do with ideas of kind of Jewish faith and Jewish belief, seem to kind of be running through uh, a lot of the things that he writes about. Um, and all of these are done, essentially published, while he's here in London, right? So this is kind of the bulk of his literary career is as Chacham of the community. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, about who he is and about some of the important episodes that happen in his life uh, when he's in London, because that's really where we know the bulk uh, about him. Uh, and so we'll go through a few stories. As I mentioned, he's the first rabbi to serve uh, in this synagogue. The previous rabbi has left just as the synagogue is being completed. Which is interesting. You think you're kind of here during a building project. You wouldn't want to leave before the uh, the project is over. But he gets a uh, a bigger role in uh, in Amsterdam, and uh, and takes that role and leaves. And so the first chacham that will serve here will be David Nieto. Uh, And then, as I mentioned, he's told he can't serve as a doctor. His 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 only job function is to be the rabbi of the community. He's told that he's supposed to, to preach every other week, and he's supposed to teach uh, some Torah every Monday and Thursday. He kind of has delineated in his contract. He's also meant to kind of be a liaison with the community, kind of about representing the Jew, the Jewish community, um, and, and so on, right? He's is, he is the, he the religious uh, leader of the community, um, not the chazan. He's not the Chazan of the community, he's the, he's the, Chacham. He's the Ch- Chacham of the community, he's the rabbi. His life gets interesting in uh, after being here for two years. Uh, it's uh, 1703, uh, and it is the Perashah yeshev it's November 20th, uh, uh, 1703, and he delivers a sermon, and in that sermon he explains uh, the Jewish view on divine providence uh, where he says that you can't separate uh, nature from God right, that they are in essence uh, intertwined uh, perhaps you might say one and the same and there are murmurings in the synagogue people begin to talk and question whether their Chacham is in fact a heretic, uh, whether he is a heretic. Uh, this charge is led by one of the members of the community, uh, Yehoshua Tzarfati, uh, Yehoshua Tzarfati, Uh and they claim that he is in essence, and an at least this is the way that it's typically portrayed, though it might be a little bit more complicated than this, but that he is a pantheist, Right, that he uh, believes that nature and God are the same. Some people say, is he being accused of being a Spinozist? Uh, again, a person that's denying God by saying, might, uh, might not be that that's actually what the argument was, but that he is a pantheist, right? that he is a, a, a pantheist, right? And that he, what he is expressing is not the belief uh, in God that we should have. Um, and there are uh, a protest made to the Muhammad, made to the board. Um, now, at the same time, there will be a, uh, a protest which is sent to the Bet Deen in, or to the Mahamad in Amsterdam as well, by about 13 members of the community. Again, essentially uh, complaining about, uh, about what this is heretical. Uh, they write back and they say, you know, they can't get involved, you know, direct, you know, through members. It has to kind of go through the board of the synagogue. Uh, in the meantime, uh, by the following year, 1704, Nieto has published a book on the subject, right, which is his uh, De la Divina Providencia, right, where he writes, where he explains his position about divine providence. Uh, we'll, we'll go into what exactly is going on in, in, a, in a little bit. Uh, and uh, ultimately, the board will submit essentially the. Comp- then people will, will make an official complaint to the board and the board will send this complaint together with uh, uh, Nieto's book to Amsterdam to the board uh, to bring to the Bet Din uh, that they should rule on whether their Chacham is in fact a heretic. Uh, the board uh, in Amsterdam after kind of delaying ends up saying that they can't uh, get involved uh, with what's going on, uh, and so everything is returned to uh, to the Mahmad in London, uh, who instead turned to uh, one of the major rabbis in. Hamburg. We had mentioned previously that Hamburg is in important Spanish-Portuguese community. They're not sending it to the Spanish-Portuguese rabbi there. They're sending it to kind of though the major rabbi in, in Amsterdam, whose name is Chacham Tzvi Ashkenazi. He's had some experience in Sephardic communities because he had been in the East. That's where he got the title Chacham. He kept the title Chacham. Uh, and I think I have a picture of him over here as well. This is Bevis Marks, looking much as it did in 1701. Uh, and then here is Chacham Tzvi. And he writes, he reviews the documents with two other rabbis and they make a ruling saying that Nieto is not a heretic, what he in fact writes is true, uh, and that ultimately puts the matter to rest. It will be the kind of the beginning of a positive relationship with Chacham Tzvi, Believe in, even uh, mourn him when he dies, uh, I think in like 1718 here in London, both Ashkenazi and Sephardic community together. He is a uh, respected figure uh, here. After being in in Hamburg, he'll eventually go and become the, the head rabbi for a time of the Ashkenazi community in Amsterdam. So he's kind of very closely affiliated with the different major Sephardic, uh, Western Sephardic communities. So what exactly is going on with, uh, with everything that, that's happening over there? So for this, we have to get our minds a little bit into 18, early 18th century uh, thought, and we'll start to see why he is a, why he's an interesting figure. So. There is a, uh, a, uh, a change in, in thinking uh, in the world at this time. Uh, of course, people classically kind of looked at the Bible and you know, the way the Bible describes things, you know, they took it at face value, and that's how they understood it. Um, but there was a movement happening in this country um, during that time. Uh, and there was a new religious kind of philosophy that had begun to uh, ferment, uh, which was known as... deism, okay, uh, the deism, okay, or deists, who essentially said, or does anybody know what that means, what does it mean to be a deist? God is a uh, God. Sorry? God. God is a deist. So, no, so deists believe is that God created the world and then left it alone, left it alone right, Then everything else, that everything else begins to, uh, to take its course. Okay, that of course goes against what the Bible says, right? Because the Bible shows how God regularly interacts with the world, right? And there's miracles, and there God communicates with us, and so on, right? So, Deism was obviously from a, a, a biblical perspective, or certainly from a Jewish perspective, right, and a an traditional Christian perspective, as being uh, being heretical. Being heretical. Right, so this was this movement was a movement that was gaining popularity in England, right? And you can imagine the mainstream Christian community was also quite, uh, quite opposed uh, to to this Deism as well. Now, as part of this is also the idea that you could kind of like the idea of uh, natural religion is part of these debates and so on. So you have Deism, which essentially says God created the world, but then took a back seat. You have Pantheism, right? That say nature and God are one, right? Which is considered to also be heretical, right? To be heretical because in a sense, then you're you're basically saying that nature just is God. There is no, in a sense, divine intervention, right? There is no kind of outside will acting on the world, right? Simply, what nature is is God. And then you have the idea that um, that's being put forth by Nieto, which is neither of those, which is neither of those, which essentially is saying that the Jewish belief is based on the verse that says uh, that Hashem is mechadesh Yom b'choyom tamit, right? that God renews creation every day, right? which essentially says that you can't divide between nature and God because nature is being directed by God. And the only difference between nature and miracles is that what we perceive as nature is simply a miracle that God is continuously performing. And miracles are things that God does that are different than the things that he usually does. Right? But that everything is always a miracle. right? That God is, in a sense, willing existence into being at every moment. Right? And that it's true that nature is tied up with God, but it's because God is directing all of that nature. Okay, So it's not that nature is God, it is that God is constantly directing uh, that nature. This was an idea that was had become popular uh, at that time. It was what some Christian leaders were saying at that time as well, as a way to kind of make sense of uh, Newtonian science and trying to understand kind of uh, a new understanding that people had of nature and how to... If there's nature that's happening, how do we, as religious people, understand that? If now all of a sudden there's inner workings to nature, then what we see in the world around us is not miraculous because there's science to explain what's happening, right? So here comes this religious idea and say, well, that God is directing what we see happening uh, happening in nature. Uh, You find a um, similar idea in Rambam. Rambam seems to be a bit different. Rambam actually says, that God does step away. Right? He sets nature up, so everything that happens in nature is because God, in the sense that he's willing it to happen, but I'm not saying that he's intentionally doing it every moment, but that everything is happening because God has, has given it the, this divine power in order to exist, and that from time to time God will intervene with, with you know, things that seem out of nature. So there's a couple different ways of looking at it, but the point is that it's not deism and it's not pantheism, it's somewhere kind of in the and essentially, what he was doing is actually almost kind of cutting edge at that time, where he's trying to go ahead, he's immersed in the knowledge of the scientific world at that time, or should I say the challenges that science are presenting to religion, right, the idea that there is science, right, that there is an understanding of how nature works, right, There's the beginning of it, right? enlightenment thinking, and right? people understanding and looking at the natural world, and him trying to make sense of how can you be a believer in science and also be a believer in Judaism, right? And there are also Christian preachers that are trying to do this very same thing, right? So he is a person who is uh, very much in touch with what's happening in the world and is trying to um, synthesize the two together, right? He's not saying, you know, we just should reject science. And at the same time, he's not saying that we should reject Torah. He's saying we need to find a way to make the two of them work together, right, in that way, very much in line with what Rambam had tried to do and so on. So he's kind of that continuation of saying we need to accept the truths that we're learning about the world, but also accept the truths of the Torah and find a way to harmonize them to show that they can live, uh, that they can live together. So in that sense, and perhaps this, uh, that, that text kind of represents that um, approach that I think we would at least like to think, right, kind of represents the philosophy of the Western Sephardim, right? The Sephardim Jews that found themselves in the West, where they are committed to Jewish tradition, but also equally committed to uh, the advances of the world and are trying to find a way to show how they can live, they can live together. Right? And I would say, to some extent, right, to a large extent, that's the model that our community still embraces and tries to follow, obviously, with, with different scientific ideas, but essentially that same pursuit of embracing both at the same time. Uh, what I'll add is the, the story um, takes, a, takes a bit of a funny turn. Um, the, the board here is not too happy with, with the board in Amsterdam. Refusing to adjudicate their case. Um, <clears throat> now, now, why exactly they didn't adjudicate it is uh, is not entirely clear. Um, the chacham here at the beginning of the twentieth century, Chacham Gaster, wrote a, one of the first histories of the community, and in his work, he he suggests that it has something to do with uh, Shlomo Ailon. Uh, Shlomo Ailon is now in Amsterdam, uh, and. He had had problems when he was the rabbi here as well. Uh, There were people that were opposed to him, uh, people that uh, accused him of being uh, perhaps somewhat heretical, uh, perhaps having Sabbatean tendencies. Um, And what seems is that the people that supported Ilone make up many of the people who are opposed to Nieto uh, and who write this letter asking for guidance from Amsterdam. Uh, and so that means is that alone, who maybe had, had difficulty with some, with the kind of, we might say was the board of the community when he was here, uh, is perhaps not interested in kind of now supporting them against those very same people that had supported him when he was here. Uh, we know that for sure, that, that's, a, that's a theory that's put forward for what perhaps was going on there. In any case, they refuse to get involved. The board here is so upset that they write into the minutes of the community that from this point forward, they will never again see counsel from Amsterdam. Uh, and historians point this out that this is a major turning point in the history of the community, because essentially until this time, London is a satellite of Amsterdam. Right? The synagogue itself is modeled on the synagogue in Amsterdam. All of, essentially, all of the rabbis um, are coming through Amsterdam or through the recommendation of Amsterdam. Perhaps Nieto is different. But all those rabbis in the 17th century are coming via Amsterdam. Uh, and they essentially are saying that that's not going to be the case anymore. right? They, they are no longer going to see themselves as subordinate to the rulings of Amsterdam because when they needed them, they weren't there for them. Uh, and this will be a time where now London will start to see itself as independent and will start to play the role that Amsterdam played for it to now new communities that will be cropping up beneath it. So you think of the community that will be founded in Gibraltar in the early 1700s. The communities that will be established in the Caribbean. Uh, under the British flag, in, the, in America, under the British flag, right? And that Bevis will essentially play for those communities what Amsterdam had once played for them, right? So the child is now going to become a parent, uh, as it were. Um, and so that is a major kind of shift uh, that will take place. Ultimately, not all correspondence will be cut off. There still will be needs for collaboration, particularly when it comes to charity work for the poor and pe- poor people that are kind of floating between the different communities and so on, but in terms of kind of authority, they no longer look to Amsterdam as the, their authority, right? They see themselves now as being independent and being able to handle cases uh, on their own. So that is a major moment uh, that happens for what I would say is uh, uh, English independence, uh, as it were, uh, which perhaps fits well, because this is also the beginning of the reign of. Of Queen Anne and the end of William of Orange, so they're already kind of in the political sphere as a break between kind of uh, English-Dutch relations, and perhaps this is mimicking that um, on some level as well. Okay, but let's let's go on because uh, the story is going to continue now um, in a in a really interesting way because there's going to be a major development that's going to take place uh, within within the community here. Uh, and it also is gonna be tied up with changes in, uh, in politics as well. Uh, and this will not have to do with the Dutch, this is gonna have to do with Portugal. Uh, in 1703, the British uh, uh, will make a peace treaty with the Portuguese. Uh, and this peace treaty will open up trade routes between the two countries. And one of the, uh, I guess, articles That they uh, that they agree upon say says that any British vessel, which is docked in the port of Lisbon, cannot be searched by Portuguese officials. Right, that those boats have kind of uh, independence. Right, that they will not be harassed by uh, by um, by the different uh, officials in in Portugal, Um, and essentially opening up freer trade between the countries. Now, this, uh, shall we say loophole, is going to open up an opportunity, because also what's gonna happen in the beginning of the 1700s is the Portuguese Inquisition is going to become more active. Now, the Inquisition has been officially active since 1736. Um, Sorry, since 1536, Uh, but it's not a constant. You know, there's kind of moments at times that the Inquisition is, is more active, sometimes that it's less active. It seems to be sometimes influenced by political considerations, uh, by fears of collaboration. There's kind of different times where the Inquisition seems to be kind of almost acting as the hand of uh, political desires as well. And of course, the Inquisition theory is looking for heresy, all kinds of heresy, but top among them are Catholics that are living as Jews. Uh, which, which are the new Christians or the conversos. Uh, and there is an uptick in, um, in activity of the Inquisition looking into conversos uh, to see if they are in fact practicing Judaism. Uh, being accused by the Inquisition is, is, is dangerous, you're imprisoned, your property is taken from you, you know, even if ultimately you're found to be not guilty, you, know, you spent two years in prison, you know, your, all of your care while in prison is paid for by your estate that they have seized, right? So it causes terrible problems, not to mention you might actually be found guilty, and then you could have your properties permanently seized, you could potentially be put to death. It's, it's in, incredibly problematic, and so this is gonna create a, a situation where there are gonna be conversos that are looking to leave Portugal, right, to escape the Inquisition. Uh, and they're going to want to escape to London. Right, this is the beginning of kind of the British Empire, uh, the trade happening with the, with, the, with the Indies, with the West Indies. Of course, the conversos are deeply involved in trade. That's their socioeconomic position in Portugal. They are merchants, uh, and so they are going to look for places to go. High up on that list is going to be London. Uh, this starts to happen. You start having these conversos escaping to London, showing up. Uh, at Bevis Mark Synagogue. Uh, and there's a lot of them. It's probably several thousand uh, that will come over the next 30 years. Uh, and the Mamad participates in this. They actually uh, approach British vessels, British captains, and tell them that they will pay the, um, the cost of any Jew that they smuggle out of Portugal. Uh, so you imagine these people are escaping onto these vessels. sometimes they have are escaping with funds, but oftentimes they're just escaping with what's on their back and they don't have the funds to pay for cap to pay their fare. And so the Mahmoud says that they will pay the fare of any conveyor so that they smuggle out that they smuggle out. And so this is something that the community is actively participating in. Um, what we know is that the Portuguese officials become wise to this uh, and in fact make will at times want to board ships and the British captains will say, "I'm sorry you're not permitted to board our vessels that breaks the treaty and so there will actually be official dispatches of the ambassador complaining to the British officials that that their captains are essentially smuggling out um, people that are accused of breaking the law right now of course the, the British don't care because they're Protestants they're not Catholics and in this country there's all kinds of negative things about the uh, Inquisition that said anyway right? it's part of kind of oh look how terrible Catholics are they have inquisitions and so on and so the British essentially ignore their complaints and they say sir we don't know what you're talking about any vessel that you know is a British vessel you are not permitted you're not permitted to to enter and so are these people that are kind of at the cover of night sneaking onto British ships and then getting smuggled to England um, now It all sounds great, but it's going to be problematic, because what's going to happen is some people are going to show up in London and have no interest in coming to shul. You know, I mean, these people have been living as Catholics for over two centuries. Uh, Some of them are leaving because they're afraid of being accused, but not because they're actually living as Jews. There might be false accusations, or they might or what they're being accused of as being Jews is so nominally Jewish that for any standard Jewish community, they don't fit in at all. And they get here, they don't actually want to participate in the community, or even if they want to participate in the community, they want to remain marginally part of the community. Uh, and one of the things that they, many of them refuse to do is to be circumcised. Uh, and so the Muhammad uh, adds a regulation that says that they will pay the fare of any person that uh, is escaping from Portugal, as long as they are circumcised within 15 days of arrival. Uh, and this is a way to encourage uh, the men arriving to uh, get brit milah when they get here. We have the circumcision book of the, uh, the mohel from that time, and you see lists and lists and lists of people that get brit milah, aged 70 years old, aged 10 years old, all in between. We have lists of marriages from that time. Everyone who's come now has to be get a chuppah, has to have a Jewish marriage, and a ketubah, and so on. Essentially, all these people are coming and are being kind of assimilated into the Jewish community. Um, but of course, there's many that are not, right? That are kind of kind of stay on the edge and never really kind of fully make their way into the community. And you'll have people kind of all along the, the, um, the spectrum of participation, right? From people that are kind of actively involved in the community to people that are not involved at all, people who, who, who come to synagogue but don't get circumcised, people who get circumcised but only come to the, participate in the community from time to time. Uh, and, it's, and it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge. that here they're trying to kind of create a Jewish community and that they have people all over the spectrum. Now, we know that this was a problem that Sasportas already had, in the early 1600s, we saw that his approach was you give people six months uh, of being kind and encouraging to them. And after six months, he says you break their bones, right? You really kind of tell them this is the way it is. Uh, and he actually pushed out a lot of people from the community that, that refused to do circumcision. Um, and it seems that, you know, things have, have shifted where you now have people who are, you don't have that as much of an issue. People who are refusing circumcision but still want to be in the community. But you do have people who are have been circumcised, want to be in the community, but are not towing the line um, and fully being you do people who have not been circumcised are completely out of the community. But that's not the problem. The problem are these people who are kind of half in, half out, and what exactly do you do uh, do you do with these people? Um, and that's the issue that he is that he is struggling with. Um, and so this is going to lead him to uh, to write this book. Uh, to write this book called Maté Dan. Uh, we'll, take a look, we'll take a look at it uh, in a few minutes. Um, and essentially, he is struggling, he's addressing the struggle that many of these people have. You know, these are people that have come from Portugal. They're well-educated. They obviously know Catholicism. And so they've studied the Bible. They know what the Old Testament says. Uh, and many of them might say are believers and are committed to doing that. And yet they get here, and what it says in the Torah is not exactly what they see happening in synagogue. right? There's all these things happening that they're not familiar with, because those are things that are in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, and so on, that are not familiar to them, right, what we otherwise might call the Torah Ped, the oral law, right? as opposed to what they know from reading the Bible, the Torah She'bichtav, the written law. Uh, and they refuse to follow. They refuse to follow, uh, to follow the chachamim, to follow the sages. Um, and this is you know incredibly problematic. They're trying to create a mainstream Jewish community over here. And you have all these people that are not willing to uh, to follow to follow the law. And this is a, a major problem that really kind of surfaces in the in the 17th and 18th century, where you know you have historic heresy of people not believing in God and not believing in resurrection of the dead, kind of these like classic things that you have. But what you have new really happening in the 17th and 18th century is what is a problem that kind of historians talk about of emunat chachamim, right, of belief in the sages, right, that that is the new heresy of the time, Uh, and Davinieto writes a book devoted to that topic of trying to demonstrate why the oral law is just as legitimate and just as binding as the written law, right, and that is what this book is about. So I'm going to take a look at some of the things that he writes over here. and we'll start with his, uh, with his introduction, and we'll start with the meaning of the book itself. So he writes over here, he says, My reason for writing this work, "Mate dan, which means the rod of judgment, is that I consider it as a powerful rod with which to smite the forehead of the Karites. Right? He's referring to those that believe in the Torah, but not in the sages, as the Karites of old. Right? And he goes into this, that this was a problem with the Sadducees. And then finally, the Prudushim, the Pharisees, beat them after the destruction of the temple. And then you had in the Middle Ages, the beginning of the Karite movement that, again, believed in the written law, not the oral law. And he says what we have today in the 17th, 18th century is a resurrection, as it were, of the Karites, right, among these conversos, right? these returning conversos. Right? So he's written this as a rod with which to smite the forehead of the Karites a weapon embodying a sound knowledge, right? It is a weapon of knowledge that he's going to smite them with, by which they may be convinced that all the efforts of their wise men to arrive at the import of the words of the living God, without the aid of the traditions transmitted by Moses to our learned ancestors, have been futile. Those traditions will never be forgotten. As they exist today, so will they be in all future time. Right? So he's essentially saying, you know, there are people who say that they can know what the Torah expects of us without studying the words of the sages. And he says, I will show to you that that is false, that you cannot know what the Torah truly means without what the sages, what the Chachamim of the Mishnah and the Talmud uh, explain to us. Okay, and that is why he is writing this book. Uh, the other key reason for the name of Mate Don, which is the rod of judgment, is that Don also is an acronym for David Nieto. So this is the Mate of Don, the Mate of David Nieto, the rod of David Nieto is this book that he is writing. So this is his, what we might say, his magnum opus. Now. He writes it in a really interesting way um, because he also refers to it as Kuzari Hasheni, the second Kuzari. Uh, the Kuzari is a book written in the Middle Ages, uh, I believe in the 12th century by Yehuda HaLevi, the famous uh, Jewish poet, but also a Jewish philosopher, um, where he writes about uh, the conversation that takes place between a rabbi and a philosopher and the king of the Khazars. Uh, which were, are said to have been a nation uh, that converts to, to, to Judaism uh, after the king has kind of discussed religion with different figures and has chosen that Judaism is, in fact, the correct religion, and his whole uh, nation converts. And so the Kuzari is essentially uh, kind of a, a fictitious account of what that conversation, you know, would have been. Um, and so he writes this book in the same way, where he has two figures. He has the person known as the Haver, uh, which in, in rabbinic discourse means like a learned fellow. Well, I mean, literally we say it means friend, but it means a learned fellow. Is referred, that's what, the way the term is used in rabbinic discourse, and the king of the Khazars. Um, but instead of it taking place in the, the conversation taking place in the uh, 1100s, the conversation is taking place in the 1700s. Okay, so it's kind of the descendants of those people now having a conversation. And we'll see over here the beginning of it. So it's written, it's written into five dialogues, right, five sections. So this is from the first dialogue, and he says the following. He says, he says nevertheless, and it, why is he writing this? This is what the uh, king of the Khazars is saying to uh, the Khaver. He says, nevertheless, all the discourses that he, Yehuda HaLevi, had with my illustrious father, Joseph, referred only to the scriptural law, right? Meaning all the philosophical debates in the Kuzari have to do with belief in the Torah itself. But the oral law he touched upon but seldom, and then but slightly. Wherefore have I felt grief in my heart as the Karaites now question the veracity of the traditions of our learned ancestors, right? So he's essentially taking this argument that he's having in his community in London and pro- projecting it onto this, you know, onto the Khazars, and that he's essentially having a conversation with the Khazars about this question of, you know, what is the oral law? Why do we have to believe in it? What is it? Uh, and, and, you know, and so on. Um, and so he presents it as a conversation with the Khazars. It's known as the Khuzari Hashemi. Uh, this book is reprinted tons of times. It's, it becomes super, super popular. Uh, it's originally written in Spanish. So again, you can know who his... Uh, who his clientele is, he's referring to the conversos, um, and then it's translated many, many times into Hebrew, uh, often in kind of Eastern Europe, so it becomes a popular um, book uh, there, um, and will be, for the first time, translated into English. Can anybody guess when that might be? In the 19th century. In the 19th century, in 1842, did that year mean anything to anybody? 1842, 1842, 1842. Can anybody think of something that happens just before then? Not, uh, the reformed Reform synagogue opens in 1841, yeah. right? And one of their primary uh, beliefs is you are obligated to follow the laws of the Torah, but not the laws of the rabbis. Mm-hmm. And so the community says. What do we have to defend ourselves against that? Oh, yeah, Chacham Nieto wrote this thing hundred, you know, thirty years before. We'll now translate it into English. Who do they get to translate it into English? But uh, someone named Louis Lowy. Uh, Louis Lowy is the... Uh, kind of advisor to Moses Montefiore. He's uh, probably one of the most well-educated Jews in England. He's come from Central Europe. He knows many different languages, uh, and perhaps he's even employed by Montefiore to translate Matedan. He translates it in 1842 uh, and again in 1845. Uh, the, the the first section is 1842. The second section is 1845. The last three sections, he never gets around to translating until you get to the the 21st century, and his great grandson, Raphael Loewy, translates the rest of it. Um, and that is then published by uh, Society of Heshaim, right of the Spanish and Portuguese, uh, in this beautiful edition, uh, I think in 2008. Um, Yeah, 2008, right, in celebration of the 350th anniversary, which is 2006, of the readmission of the Jews uh, to to England, um, with an introduction by him as well. So very beautiful that his great-grandson ultimately completes uh, the translation, and it's published by the community at that time. But you get a sense of the significance of that, right, that they kind of see this problem resurfacing again in the 19th century with this early reform movement uh, as well. So it has quite an uh, interesting story uh, in it, and we'll take a, look, uh, take a look at that. But here, I'll just show you. This is uh, Dr. Louis Lowy's uh, introduction to his translation, 1842. He says, the translator himself wishes it to be distinctly understood that his sole motive in writing this is to strengthen his brethren in their, adher- in their adherence of the ordinances of the Lord as delivered by Moses and expounded by Israel's revered sages. We know exactly who he's talking to. Right, and exactly what his concern is, right? So there are Karaites once again in London in the 19th century as well, okay? So this is a recurring problem, uh, shall we say, within, within the community. Uh, so I thought that that was interesting. But let me just kind of talk, instead of going through it inside, I just want to kind of go through um, uh, quickly, and this is kind of, we're, we're getting a bit closer towards the end, kind of his, his basic arguments within the book. So the first thing that he says, is that the oral law predates the written law. Even before we have a Torah, before Moses gets the to Torah at Mount Sinai, we already have an oral law, because we know. I mean, you can just look in the Torah and see examples of it. God tells Abraham to do circumcision. There's no book. There's no written law. And that's passed down. And they start doing circumcision in each generation, right? And there's laws about not eating the hind court, right? not eating the... The the the, uh, the what's it called the sinu. the, the sinew right and that's from the times right of Jacob and that's passed down right so all of a sudden you have these things and in fact the Torah mentions that Abraham is told you know follow my my laws and my statutes and so you see that there are already things there's already uh, practices that are being observed by the house of Abraham that the Israelites are following, right? So they're not just living like everyone else. They're actually starting to live in a distinct way. And yes, some of that stuff will then be codified in the Torah itself, in the written law, but it's already been an oral tradition that predates it, right? This is perhaps the reason that some of the sages say that Avraham that kept all of the mitzvot, Right, that he kept the whole Torah even before the Torah was given. That idea that there was already observance of some things that we'll find in the Torah even before the Torah is actually given. Right? There is a, an identity to the people of Israel when they're in Egypt before they've received the Torah because they have certain customs and practices that they're already doing. So there already is an oral law before you get to the Torah. And then he says, and we know that that continues when the Torah is given because the Torah is not given to us in full detail. In fact, there's oftentimes that it's clearly given in a shorthand way. It requires uh, a degree of uh, interpretation. And he says that that was given to Moshe as well. And he says, in fact, you can find that because sometimes even within the Bible itself, you'll see references to an oral tradition because sometimes you'll have in the later works, in the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, that they'll make reference to laws that aren't written in the Torah, So clearly there are laws that the people are keeping, that they're following, or interpretations of the laws that are not found in the five books of Moses themselves, but that people are doing as well. So you can see that there is this oral tradition that is also part, coming side by side with the written tradition as well, right? And so that's one part of the belief, right, that there is a tradition of interpretation that is just as binding as the written law, even though it was passed down orally until it was finally started to be writ- written down around the times of the destruction, right, with the Mishnah and with the, and with the Talmud. Um, now, one of the things that he, that he adds, right, is that there's also, that there are rabbinic disputes. And he says the rabbinic disputes are never over, are not because we don't know the laws. Rabbinic disputes are because we know there's no disagreement about what the laws are, there's just sometimes disagreements about some of the details of the laws. So when the rabbis are arguing in the Talmud, it's not because you know, some of them just didn't know that, like almost like the laws are being invented then. No, there's agreement about what the laws are. But sometimes there's just disagreements about some of the, the details of the laws, and that's what the rabbis are quibbling about in the Talmud. But it's not that they're disagreeing about the laws. The laws have been kept well before them. They're, they're debating details of laws that people have been keeping for centuries or millennia, right, already, from, from the times that the Torah was already given. Um, in fact, uh, it's not up to each person to decide for themselves what the law is that they should follow, right? There's particularly a right which one could claim, say, well, why don't we each interpret the Torah for ourselves, right? And that should be okay, because the Torah says, Lotit that you should not create factions, Right, that there should not be factions. Right, there is this idea that there should be consensus within the community. We're not supposed to each kind of do our own thing. In fact, the Torah says, right, that you shall lift, listen. El <laughs> You shall listen to the judges. Right, that there is this idea of that there may sometimes be different opinions, but ultimately there's supposed to be conformity in terms of in terms of what we do. And it's not up to each person to just decide for themselves. Right, we're meant to listen to uh, to the sages. Um, taking a step further, right, he says that not only does this apply to kind of the interpretation or the application of the Torah laws, but of course this also applies to the enactments of the sages as well, right, like Chanukah and Purim, right, and Brachot and Tefillah, right, all the things that the sages enact. He says we're also obligated to follow those things because, in fact, when we do those mitzvot, we say a bracha, we say a blessing. And what do we say in that blessing? Blessed are you, Lord our God, who sanctified us with his commands and commanded us to light the Hanukkah. God never commanded us to light the Hanukkah, right? How, it, Hanukkah happens after the Torah. So how do we say that? So he says that idea that it says in the Torah that you should listen to the sages in your generation means it's telling us that if the sages in your generation make enactments that you are meant to follow those enactments of the later generations. And he goes a step further, he quotes a, an important passage in the Talmud, and again, I'm not doing this whole subject justice, but he, he essentially lays out this idea that it says in the Talmud, right, everything that the sages enacted, they modeled on the biblical law, right? So what that means is that the sages didn't go ahead and kind of create things that were completely from left field, They essentially saw what the the direction the Torah was going and they modeled their enactments on the Torah itself, right? So sometimes they make fences around the Torah to protect laws and say, don't do this lest you come to do that. But they also sometimes add things and they're trying to model it after it, right? So we know in the Torah that you should say grace after meals. Ah, so we see from there, there's an idea of being thankful to God through blessing. As it says, right, that you shall eat and you shall be satisfied and you shall bless. So we see this idea of blessings. So the rabbi said, great, blessings are beautiful. Let's say blessings at other times as well. And so they enacted blessings, right? So everything they did is, is essentially uh, not new, but it's just kind of elaborate or expanding on what it says in the Torah and that those things are just as binding uh, on us as, uh, as, the things that the, uh, as the things that the Torah itself says explicitly. Right, and so that becomes an important idea, right? That he is really trying to uh, communicate to the people with his rod, his rod of ideas, right? That we are obligated to follow what it says in the Bible, but also obligated to follow what it says in the Talmud uh, as well, right? We're also obligated to follow uh, the sages, right? And this is a really important text, and he's responding to his a time where he has all these conversos that are struggling with this are struggling with this idea, right? They're in the community, they're identifying as Jews, they're doing circumcision, but, you know, I don't have to do that, right? And so he's saying, yes, you do. And my rod will show you why you have to do that. So this becomes a really important work, um, addressing an issue um, really important to his time, and that will continue to be important, really, you know, in 19th century and afterwards, um, where you're dealing with a group of people who believe in the Bible, but they just don't believe in the sages. Right? As opposed to maybe, you know, nowadays where people don't believe in anything, right? So there it's kind of, he's saying these people believe in the Torah, but not the rest. And so he's going to write a book to kind of firm up their faith uh, in the Chachamim, in the sages. So incredibly, incredibly important work. Um, the last uh, episode that happens, or kind of major episode that happens, that he writes uh, response to, is this work that he does in the year after Eshtat, uh, with a fire of religion, and it is essentially a, uh, an attack against the Sabbateans. There is a uh, Sabbatean known as Nechemiah Chia Hayun, who's in Amsterdam, who's going to be coming to London. He already has a following. Uh, and the Sabbatean philosophy is that, yes, you have to follow the Torah, but sometimes you can sin as long as you sin with proper intent. Then even your sin is a mitzvah. It's a. Uh, complicated uh, philosophy of the followers of Shabtai Tzvi, known as Avera Li doing an Avera, a sin for its own sake, and elevating all of God's creation, the things that we're meant to do and things that we're not supposed to do. We can elevate the bad things as well by doing it with higher thoughts. And so the 17s are often accused of doing terrible sins and you know, sexual immorality and things like that. But they're doing it with higher ideas. And so it becomes OK for them to do it. And I guess this is an ongoing battle, meaning Shabtai Tzvi converts in the 1660s to Islam, but that doesn't end the Sabbatean movement, right? Through his students and their students, some of his philosophy continues, and those battles continue. Uh, What's interesting is one of the major uh, opponents of Sabbatean movement is Sasportas, who actually is part of the group of people that is close with Shlomo Ailon, who we actually know is a closeted Sabbatean. We know know later that he actually... he tries to support Hayon and is in touch through letters with other Sabateans in Italy. us! if he knew that Hayon had been a Sabbatean, would have gone crazy. He didn't realize that that's in fact who he was. There are all kinds of questions about Hayon, um, But he has a very prominent role in Amsterdam, so he, he's hidden it extremely, extremely well. Um, but in any case, uh, when they're going to be coming to London, so Nieto was asked to write a response, and he had to write the whole response explaining why the ideas of Hayon, where he's quoting Kabbalah are actually not what the Kabbalah is actually saying and Kabbalah actually is saying something else and that the ideas of Hayon are actually heresy and basically trying to explain what is you know the true meaning of Kabbalistic or the Zohar uh, and as opposed to what the Sabbateans are, uh, misinterpreting what the Zohar, what the Kabbalistic teachings are actually saying. So he writes that important work as well. Um, I'm gonna conclude now. Uh, Nieto, in this sense you can see he's kind of far ranging. He kind of writes on a variety of things, he has kind of a great scope. Uh, he's famous for his fight against Sabbateans, right? That's in Eshtat. Uh, he's extremely well known for his fight for Emunat Chachamim, for faith in the sages, um, and because of some of his other works defending the pursuit of science and showing how science can be synthesized with, uh, with traditional Judaism, right, really becomes the, you know, kind of the model par excellence of the Western Sephardim, right, of saying that you can be a person of the world, you can be a person of society, you can be highly educated, as many of the members were from their times in Spain and Portugal and the universities there, uh, but you can also be a devout Jew. Right? And he really becomes kind of that model of saying, you know, oh, you know, we should all be like a Nieto. You know, when you, you hire, you know, a, a rabbi of the Spanish and Portuguese, you say, well, you know, is he like Nieto? You know, it, does he have a college education? You know, does he have a higher degree? Is he also a Talmud Chacham? Is he a great scholar? Is he a is he a defender of the faith? Right? And you kind of look to Nieto as this model of what, you know, of what a Chacham, of what a rabbi in the Spanish and Portuguese uh, should look like. And I think really laid the the groundwork for establishing uh, this community, that this should be a mainstream community of believers, of adherence to the Torah, but people who are equally comfortable in broader society as well, and that those things are not in tension, those things are not in conflict. In fact, you can be fully part of traditional Jewish life while fully part of society uh, as well. Um, He had a very long tenure in the community. It ends with his death right? That's, uh, that's, that's, that's pretty good when it ends, uh, when it ends that way and not with leaving. Uh, and in fact, he has a beautiful ending to his Dan that I want to conclude the uh, lecture with because he essentially is talking about himself uh, and it's really lovely. So let's read over here. He says, this is the end of the fifth dialogue. So the kuzar, right? The head of the kuzar says, he goes, turning to this chaver, to this rabbi, should you consent to stay with us here, I will give you a million golden dinars for your departure hence would weigh heavily upon me. Right, so he says, I'll stay, I'll pay you tons of money. So what is the Khaver? What does the rabbi say? He says, were you to offer me all the gold and silver in the world, I could not delay here longer. I must get on my way back to the great city of London to minister to the holy congregation of Sephardim. May God maintain soundly their establishment as I've done since the beginning of 1701. It's a beautiful, beautiful ending to his writing. Uh, thank you all so much for coming tonight. Uh, pleasure. <laughs> Uh yeah, very question. In your studies for tonight, did you have you come across any pictures, drawings, or sketches of the gravestone? Because I believe the current one is certainly much more modern. Yes, there are there are there are there are uh texts of what of what the stone had said. Of what the stone had said. It was actually it's quite elaborate, it kind of it, it talks about all the different, like, things, you know, he's an astronomer and a scientist and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, like, it kind of goes through all his, kind of, uh, his accomplishments yeah, on the stone. the stone. The stone that is there now, yes. I do not believe was the original gravestone. The original text, yeah, so I have, uh, when, I can give you the text yeah. from the original, from the original, and I have it, uh, I have a whole stack of articles here that i was read. In there, they, they, they print what the original, uh, what the original stone had said. No. No, there's a, a researcher from about 100 years ago who did a bit of work, and he writes in there, you know, oh, the stone is already worn out, or this, but he, so he talks a little bit about what, what was there. Yeah. His stone and were at the same, roughly at the same time, replaced. Replaced, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, yes, Ilana. Which language is, is there... So, I think one was in, in written in Italian, or maybe it's Latin, actually, and then later one is in Spanish. Because Graduating in Padua would be Latin. Yes. Italian. Yes. Yeah. Which, by the way, Padua in those days was one of the few, was the only universities in Italy where Jews could graduate. Exactly. Because, because the graduation ceremony was a religious. But they couldn't study everything there. The one thing they could study was to be a doctor. No, no, right? So it's interesting. He's interested in, in astronomy and things like that. That probably wasn't his actual studies, though. But yeah. there were other medical schools, but the graduation was a religious ceremony. Right, so Jews and couldn't Christian, go. So the right. Jews couldn't graduate. <clears throat> Whereas in Badger, they couldn't. Yeah. He couldn't have worked as a doctor here you know, because he was in the 1701. And what we now know is the medical school was split three ways. One was the apothecaries, which was a pseudo livery company, okay. they wouldn't have accepted a oh, someone who was trained abroad mm-hmm. without a lot of difficulty, with someone who was a Jew. Hmm. The physicians were being built up from the monks that had been thrown out and had connections with churches. And the third group, which was the barber surgeons, because the barbers knew how to create sharp knife and they became the surgeons, were right out of the fold at that stage. Well the Jewish community did employ their own doctor. Yeah. Now I don't know who that would have been it would have or been whatever. Sure. Right, right. Interesting. interesting. Um, interesting. Yeah. After in the early part of the eighteenth century regulation came mm-hmm. And they chased people in the way they, the yeah. Yeah. Presumably, they'd have, they'd have had to pay him quite a handsome salary if he was going to give up his medicine. Yes, he did. He they th- there's, I, I have in here also what he exactly was paid and they paid well, paid his travel expenses they had to bring his family over and so on. Yeah. Where did he live? I believe on Hennage Lane. I think maybe even where I live now. I think there originally had been houses built on the synagogue site, and he uh, he, he 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 was living there. Yeah. You mentioned briefly, uh, I'm interested in this Israelites um, keeping all the law. You mentioned Nehemiah and Ezra. Sorry? You mentioned Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, indications the... in these books of customs that the Israelites... Uh, what are they? <laughs> yeah. Well, you just see references to uh, uh, talking about observances. For example, the fact that they need to divorce their wives who are not Jewish. Right, so it's not written in the Torah explicitly those things, but you see that they're saying that you you know your your, your spouse has to be Jewish as well, right? So you see references in there. Uh, again, I have to go th- go through it, to kind of work through all the details. It's actually quite he, the book. gets quite detailed. Um, I'd actually be interested in studying. If anyone's interested in studying, I'd be happy to uh, <laughs> study it with you as well. It'd be fun uh, a fun class to go through his work. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's a pick up. You can order it through the Hashaim, through the Smash World's office and. Uh, have a good have a good read. It's two volumes. So the, the one volume has Hebrew and Spanish side by side, the original printing, and then the um, the second volume, which is all the translated into English. But that volume has to have the whole work, just a question. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much. Uh, next next uh, month, uh, we're going to be. I think it's the Monday after Hanukkah. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the rabbis, kind of in the latter 1700s. Uh, there was all kinds of politics then, uh, so we'll, uh, that'll be a, a different, uh, a different type of lecture. Um, so I look forward to seeing you all then, and uh, have a good night.